Hello and welcome to another episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico As, I am president of the Cooperative Cleros. And our guest today is Robin Hanson, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University and a Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. It's a bit hard to, to interview I mean, Robin because he has done so many different things, you know, in AI, international life, uh, um, governance. So we're going to focus mostly today on the governance elements of his work and the legal elements because that's what we do at Cleros. So welcome, Robin. Are uh, very happy to have you in the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's start. I mean, the first question we ask all of our guests is, I mean, try to understand a bit their background and how their intellectual journey went and how they got to work on the type of, of things that they, they work on today. Well, I guess I'm a sort of intellectual or scholar who spent a lot of time trying to like prove myself and gain credentials and some sort of a, a scope for then doing what I want. <laughs> that is, by this point in my career, I'm not especially any particular field. I'm just looking for interesting, neglected things where I can find an angle to contribute. So I just do lots of different things whenever I seem to think I've got an insight or an angle on them, uh, which makes me, you know, I don't have as standard a path or a standard set of things that I always do. Um, you know, that, I'm not saying that's a bad way to do things, but I do think it's good if there's a niche for some people to sort of be the look, you know, the ones looking for the holes and going wherever the holes are. I mean, in the early days of your career, what, what were your like main interests and who were your influences and who, what books, what, I mean, I mean, professors, who, who, what people influenced you mostly? I mean, there were so many that it <laughs> seems hard to pick anyone out because then you're neglecting everybody else. I started in uh, engineering really as an undergraduate and then I switched to physics and then I did a bit of philosophy of science for a while and then went back to physics, finished up physics, and then I did nine years of computer research, Silicon Valley, where on the side I was doing hypertext publishing before the web got started. And then I eventually went back to school to get my PhD in social science at Caltech, which did political science and economics. And I did some other futurist things and various things on the side then, and then got a job as a postdoc in health policy for two years. And then I got this tenure track position here and focused on getting tenure. But then when I finally got tenure, I allowed myself to spread out more on other topics and started a blog and uh, you know wrote a lot of different things, but then decided to focus a bit more and wrote two books on uh, the age of M, work, love, and life, when robots rule the earth, and the elephant in the brain, hidden motives in everyday life. And I've just written on a wide range of things. In the last couple of years, I did some stuff on aliens and astrophysics. And in the last few months, I've been writing, thinking about the sacred, and I just posted a working paper summarizing my analysis of the sacred. So um, I've just always liked people who just seemed insightful. That's my model. That's the currency of my realm. Uh, have an insight, something new, something interesting, some way you put things together and you go, aha, and you say, I get it, I see it, there's an insight. And I've seen people like that over the years. But I mean, often when you see an insight, you don't know if it's original. You can know if you appreciate it, but sometimes 
quite often the insights you read aren't original to the person who wrote them. So you can be grateful to having read them. But if you're trying to like praise them in an absolute sense, you need to go do research to find out, well, were they the first person with that insight or not? And that's harder to do. You know, speaking of insight, so I, I got to first know about your work because of uh, this idea of future key, right? I mean, to me, it was so, I mean, mind blowing. I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, what were you, what was your train of thought when you came up with, with this? Because to me, it was like a, I mean, a brilliant and I can't imagine what you were thinking in developing that type of governance. So, so there was a time before there was a World Wide Web. <laughs> And then I was hanging out with people who were imagining the World Wide Web and trying to talk about why it would be good. And, you know, we would talk to academics and said they would say, well, they don't need a web. They don't because they know everything important in their field because they use gossip to find everything important in their field. There's nothing in their field that that would be interesting. They don't know in their mind. We were trying to convince them they, there might be things they don't know that a World Wide Web would help them to find out. And, uh, you know, when we were envisioning what advantage of the World Wide Web One of the advantages people were talking about was saying, well, look, discussions often go wrong because it's hard to find rebuttals. So you might see something that's wrong and rebut it, but how is anybody going to find your rebuttal? And so they were focused on the idea of a backlink. That is, if you connected your rebuttal to their thing, then someone could go the other direction in that link and find your rebuttal from that thing. And we thought if good rebuttals could be found easily from things, then that would improve how people think and so we were thinking about like how people think and what's wrong with it and what could fix that and then i started to have doubts about to what extent backlinks would really solve the more fundamental problems and i said well what would solve the more fundamental problems and these people i was hanging out with who were interested in the world wide web and this vision they happened to be relatively libertarian i wasn't initially <laughs> But when since they were libertarian, they were sort of pretty, you know, free market and interested in lots of kind of markets, which exposed me to that. And so I then thought, well, if, you know, if it goes wrong when people debate topics in various ways, well, what if there was a betting market on those topics? Hmm. Couldn't that, you know, discipline the conversation and give people a chance who sort of know it's wrong to fix it? And couldn't that be another kind of solution to the generic problem of broken conversations? On, on important topics. And that's where I started right there. So I was just inheriting these Lord of Libertarian bent of the people around me and inheriting this basic question, what's wrong with our conversation institutions and how could we fix them? And I just matched those two things together and said, oh, a betting market could fix our conversations. And that was the origin of thinking of betting markets. And then later on, as I came to think about governance, then I thought of it more as a solution to governance. So my PhD was informal political theory. <laughs> I mainly started that PhD because I saw the power of, say, experiments. And, and then I realized the power of economic theory. And then because it was a program in political science, in part, I learned a lot about governance. And that made me mm -hmm. think about, well, couldn't I use the solution to conversations as a solution to governance? And that would be the origin of futarchy. So again, you can see I was just sort of in the right place at the right time to put together other ideas that people just put in front of my face. And I just made the simple connection. Can you explain to, I mean, I think more, many people in the audience will not know what futarchy is. Could you like uh, summarize it? Sure. I mean, so, so the key idea would be 
all decisions we make, including governance decisions, according to standard decision theory, are a combination of two elements. There's our values, what do we want? And then there's the facts, what's true and what's possible. And you know, in decision theory, there was, those are represented by our utilities and our probabilities. And so decisions could go wrong in part, either via getting the values wrong or getting the facts wrong. And if you think a lot of a lot of things that go wrong in the world, it looks like we get the facts wrong a lot. And the facts, in a sense, should be easier to fix because there's more ways to agree on those and to create incentives around them. So then the idea here is, well, let's make a, a system where we're going to have a new mechanism, a market mechanism for figuring out the facts, but we're going to leave alone whatever we were doing before for the values. So we're, we're, this isn't a solution for doing values better. It's a solution for doing facts better. And now you might say, well, okay, how are you going to do facts better? <laughs> and so we're, we're going to make a pretty sort of decision theory um, standard framing. We're going to say, look, what we in order to make a decision, we what we need is an outcome measure that we care about, like a thing that we could look at after the fact and say, this is what we wanted and this is how much we got of it. And that we want is just a conditional estimate of a for each decision of the different decision options and how much we're going to get out of the thing we want. So we want conditional estimates of, in decision theory, utility, uh, but for any organization, some sort of welfare, we want a conditional estimate of welfare given each decision we might make. So we say, if we do this, what do we expect welfare to be, what is that, et cetera. So it, now we've separated out. We need a way to define the welfare measure, and then we need a way to get this wealth conditional on decision estimates of welfare. And so we're close to now to my solution, but I sort of set it up in a theoretical framing. We can generically solve governance problems, which are decision problems. If only we can agree on a measure of what we want, and then we can agree on a way to produce neutral, uh, you know, informed decision conditional estimates of what we want. So once you think about something like a prediction market, a betting market, now, we, first of all, we say, let's make an asset whose value is proportional to, to, to what we want, to welfare. So uh, a simple example might be in a, in a for-profit company. A for-profit company already comes with such a measure. It's the value of the stock. So we can say to a first approximation, if you're running a for-profit company, what you want is to increase the stock price because that's the expected measure of the value of this company and what it's worth to investors as well as the rest of society. So that's our measure. We want a stock price. So let's say we have a decision. Do we keep the CEO or fire him? Discrete option. We'll know later on which one we did. And now what we really want is the stock price conditional on keeping the CEO and the stock price conditional on losing the CEO. If we could get those two numbers, compare which one was higher, that would, would tell us whether to keep the CEO, right? So first of all, I say, well, there's a stock price already that gives us a current number estimate of how much the company's worth. So that's the number we want as our, esti our estimate. We want that number conditional on keeping the CEO and conditional on not keeping the CEO. So question is, how can we get those two numbers? And the key concept here is a called off stock market. <laughs> Because an ordinary stock market, you trade stock for cash, and there's a price, and that price is a current estimate of the value of that company. And, and in order to judge whether the price is too high or too low, what you're supposed to do is go think about all the scenarios the company could be in, 
and say in each scenario, how much is this company worth? And now weigh up all these scenarios to get an average value for the company. And that's your reference for if the price is below that, you should buy. If the price is above that, you should sell. You want to move the price toward that number and make a profit as you do so. So I want these two conditional estimates instead. What's this company worth if the CEO stays and if they don't? And so all we could have to do to do create that is a called off stock price. What's that? Well, you trade stock for cash, but you call the trade off if a condition isn't met. So we have say trade the stock for cash, but if the CEO is not in power at the end of the quarter, the trade is canceled. Didn't happen. And now when you're guessing how much you should you buy the stock for the stock in that market, you'd say, well, let's average over all the scenarios the company's in, but only look at the scenarios consistent with this condition that the CEO is going to stay in power. How much is the company worth in those scenarios? That sets that price. In the other market, it's all the scenarios with CEOs not in power. Let's average those, get another stock price. And now we have a way to produce these two numbers. <laughs> stock, stock price if the CEO stays, stock price if the CEO leaves. We look at the difference between those two numbers, and that's the key market signal. Should you keep the CEO? And that's a simple example of a decision market, which is, you know, another name for futarchy basically here. And uh, but with, say, a national government or something, we don't already have the stock price and we need to make something like the stock price so that then we can use the same mechanism. Has this, I mean, this, this is from the 90s, the first time Late you published 90s, yes. it. Yeah. Right. Uh, Have this been tried at some, I mean, not, of course, not national government, but some community, I mean, in some place? Well, there have been conditional prices. So people have created markets that have conditional prices, and those seem to function well and give accurate estimates. The question is whether anybody used those prices to make judgments. Hmm. Uh, that's less clear. So, for example, in the United States, we've often had markets in who will be president. And we've had markets in who will be nominated by the two major parties. And if you have a candidate and you have those two prices, then the ratio of those two things in its essence is the conditional chance of that person being elected if they're nominated. That's advice to the party about who to nominate. So, for example, at the moment, the two main candidates being considered for the Republican nomination in the United States are Trump, who was president last time, and DeSantos, the Florida governor, and the conditional estimates of winning, the Republicans winning, if they nominate DeSantos, are substantially higher than the conditional chances of winning if Trump was elected. So that's advice to the Republican Party. You should nominate DeSantos. And in fact, the betting market chance that DeSantos will be the nominee has gone up substantially in the last few months in response, perhaps, to that information. Now, Whether the market was the main source of the information isn't clear, but this is a concrete example of a decision market, i.e. a market giving you advice about the consequence of a decision. Once upon a time long ago, people, when there was a key decision about Bitcoin and a policy, then people did have markets in estimating the value of Bitcoin, conditional in the policy or not. But I don't know if that was influential for the decision regarding Bitcoin, but that's also an example of a conditional market advising a decision. 
You know, I, I have been following prediction markets for a long time now. I Even before blockchain, and there was something called inkling prediction markets. As I saw this as a way to you know, pull collective intelligence for better decisions, you know. Um, but so for some reason, I mean, I was disappointed. It never really took off. I mean, the prediction markets never, never became as massive as we expected them to, to be. I mean, why do you think this, this was the case? So my second book called The Elephant in the Brain is all about the ways in which we are wrong about key institutions and societies and our key motives regarding them. The subtitle is Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. We are just wrong about why we do many things. And when we have a thing that would seem to make sense according to the usual motives we give, but people are not interested, that's a key data point that tends to reveal that people are not being honest about their motives. And I think that's the case for prediction markets. That is, prediction markets look good if evaluated according to the criteria that people say they impose. That is, they want their institutions to be informative and to uh, give them Good, good estimates and then make decisions based on good estimates so that they can have good outcomes. That's something people say that they want out of their governance institutions. But mm. they're lying a lot, just as we do with lots of other institutions in our lives. We have other agendas that we're less willing to admit. So one of the obstacles with uh, decision markets is that you have to be explicit about what you want. That's often an obstacle. People often are, want to pretend they want some things and actually want other things. Um, or something like hiring or firing like a CEO, people usually want to pretend that they want to hire the person who's best for the larger organization, but they really want to hire people who are their allies in the local political mm. contests. Uh, and they want to only pretend to hire who's good for the larger firm. So if you're the board of directors, you don't want some outside process that you don't control to tell you who to hire as the CEO or who to fire as the CEO. You want to be able to hire your friends and fire your rivals and negotiate with an alliance to decide who's on your side and who's not. That's what you want to do in those roles. And you don't want your hand forced by some outside objective process. And all over our organizations, most of what people pretend to do is to be scientific decision makers. They've got a spreadsheet and they're calculating the best decision for the organization in these cases. But in fact, they're mostly politicians. Most managers and most organizations are part of political coalitions that support each other and sometimes betray each other and create consensus together to support their side's position. And they don't want you know, to point to some source or to be at risk of some mechanism that they can't control that might suddenly change its mind about whether it supports them. So what you're saying is that uh, if people say they like rule of law and you know good governance, what they actually want is power and, try and being in control, basically. That's why we yes. never got to. <laughs> sure. That, I don't think that is terribly surprising. And that's also a true in law. So we can discuss law as well. There's other legal reforms that people are also shy about for similar reasons. Like what, for example? Well, so for example, uh, in most nations today, including the United States, uh, we have powerful police forces who 
are not held very accountable. They uh, there's bodies who are supposed to investigate and oversee them, but they're sort of report to the same people who the police report to, uh, and you know who want to make any apparent problems go away. Uh, we give great discretion to the police, who then get to use that discretion to prosecute who they want, to let go who they want, et cetera, to mistreat who they want as police officers. And the world over, we mostly just give them that discretion. Uh, now, once they come up to court, we make sure to, to have a clear sort of an independent judge looks things according to the law, but that's mostly, most cases aren't handled by the courts. Most cases go through, uh, you know, plea bargaining. And uh, the same sort of discretion there with the prosecutors. And we basically have a system run by discretionary police and prosecutors who just have enormous freedom about who they prosecute, how hard, and who they let go. And that's the actual law that we have. Now, we could make the law that we write down be much more enforced if we used bounty hunters. For example, how that works? Well, So, for example, in the United States, there are whistleblower laws whereby you, you are, if you find that a contractor or agency has been mis, mis, doing something wrong, then you can get a certain fraction of the money found to have been stolen as a whistleblower. And then people use those whistleblowers uh, laws to expose things. I mean, there are many cases, for example, you know, right, New York recently decided to say, hey, if you can find somebody illegally parked or illegally, uh, you know, letting their car sit and wait, a truck, uh, when they should be not waiting. If you take a picture of that, report it, we'll pay you. In Taiwan, they had a recent thing where if your dog was pooping, you didn't clean it up, and somebody took a video of that, they could report on you and they would get paid. Just in general, when we actually get fed up and want a law to be enforced, a simple thing that's always been available to us for thousands of years, this has been used, <laughs> is to offer a bounty. And you say, if you can bring evidence that somebody violated this rule, then we will pay you and pr prosecute them. And this isn't a new idea. It's an ancient idea. I um, mean, I, I have, I have researched. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. But, but when we are not sure we want the law enforced, then we hand things over to the police to decide whether the law gets enforced in any one case. If you just have a bounty hunter, then you know what? Anybody who breaks the law at any time is likely to get punished. And that might be your friend. That might be you, and maybe you don't want that. Uh, I mean, so for example, I've asked people about like when the police pull over cars at a traffic stop or for speeding, sometimes they let them go. And, and do you think on average the people that let go were the like the, the least harmful cases and the more harmful cases were the ones they prosecuted? And people say, no, they don't actually believe there's a correlation who gets let go in the more harmful cases. But if you ask them, what well, do you think you're more likely to let go? They say, yeah, I'm more likely to let go. So, <laughs> so they want the police to have this discretion so that they will let go and other people won't. You know, um, at, Clar at Claros, we are basically building a decentralized, you know, private law system. So I have done lots of research in the, what mankind has done in the past about, um, you know, incentivizing better systems for, for law. And one of the ideas that was at the core of Kleros the early days, especially was the Athens court system. You know, this idea of having, you know, um, they didn't have a police. They have like a kind of bounty decentralized, you know, system uh, and, and the decentralized court system, right? And uh, of course yeah. the incentives didn't work exactly 
uh, as it works here at Claros. But you know, th this idea of private, I mean, law and private enforcement and private bounty is kind of at the core of, of how, how Claros works. And I think we, we discussed this in the, in the past. Maybe you have some, some ideas yeah. about this. Well, I mean, the key question is, do your customers want that? That is, I think they're, they're going to say they want a neutral, unbiased enforcement of the law, but maybe what they really want is some process that they think they can influence to their favor. And would this be such a process? I think it depends, as lawyers used to say. So, I mean, if you, if you are a, a bunch of, of customers, they just don't want to deal with the disputes because uh, it takes time, takes money. So especially if they are like more like small, smaller claims, they, I mean, they don't care who wins. They just want to not, I mean, they need to provide the service because they, it's part right. of their, you know, but they don't care. I mean, if it's $100 one way or the other, but they want to look good. They want to people to see right. that they have an unbiased system, which is, you know, a kind of, a, it's a market imperative. The market demands them to have this type of method right. that works, right? Um, so then the question is, do the what do the customers see as unbiased? So, so in this case, the, the firm itself doesn't care so much. It just cares what the customers think. But now we have to ask, what do the customers think? Well, you know, the customers uh, want to win, of course. But, uh, you know, lots of research done in uh, the case of private, you know, marketplaces like eBay or I mean, PayPal, those kind of, of Web2 companies. Um, you know, the customer, if they lose... Uh, typically, they just are angry like for a few days, but then they come back and they still use the platform, right? And if they if they see that the process was kind of okay, it, it was not like tampered yeah. with, they are angry. Of course, they're not going to be happy because of losing, but they're still going to use it. So that's what that's what the customer wants. So of course, this is not going to be uh, true for every use case, especially maybe some use cases where there is like very high stakes. Where people, right. they, it's more politicized. Okay. But for, but yeah. So accord, according to this account you're giving, then it should be relatively easy to offer a neutral adjudication process that firms would like and customers would like. So then what went wrong? Why isn't that happening? So the, the, the there is, the, this exists. I mean, private arbitration for like consumer claims is, of course, not a new industry. But the problem is that in general, those processes are kind of expensive compared to the amount of money at stake because of how this structure of the process is, is like, uh, it's, it's quite slow. It's quite, I mean, uh, expensive. You have to hire a private arbitrator. But if, if you could make a different mechanism that has, is, is seen as, you know, uh, fair by parties in the sense of like it's transparent and the way it works and people can see it's not tampered with. And it can be radically like cheaper than the one that exists already. So that kind of um, covers the two main areas, being seen as fair and being cheaper and, fa and, and faster as well. You know, traditional arbitration for consumer arbitration takes like uh, at least like 90 days. Um, Claros takes like seven, 10 days. And it costs, you know, an arbitration process at Claros could cost $40, $200, depends of how, I mean, what, what the use case is and different elements. So, I mean, nobody says it's going to be used for everything. It just targets a number of, of I mean, uh, use cases where it can actually provide value, right? So if you can provide the service at a lower cost and similar quality, then you would think you'd have lots of customers, right? So do you? 
Well, at this moment, we are still uh, at the point where we still don't, don't have this um, as cheap as we expect it to be because of, you know, Ethereum scalability situations that are going to be solved in the next release we have. It's going to be way, way cheaper uh, because of reasons that are not just Kleros, it's just because of how Ethereum works. Uh, at, the, at the moment, um, Kleros has resolved 1,500 cases, which is, I mean... Uh, not, uh, I mean, not a lot by standards of how many cases are resolved at eBay, but it's quite, I mean, a bit uh, compared to other, you know, blockchain applications. And, um, and yeah, I mean, and also uh, there is a, a, an important thing that, that needs to happen is, of course, we do lots of education because the way the mechanism works is very different to, you know, traditional. So, so uh, I'm happy to let you give your pitch. How is it that you lower the cost of a decision? <laughs> because um, you could see this like uh, making a market for, for arbitrators, like way more efficient than the traditional, you know, markets that you have now. Now, if you want to, I mean, use an arbitra arbitration service, um, you need to know to go to like a qualified arbitrator and they use a procedure that is very similar to, it's, I mean, an arbitration proceeding now, uh, it's like a mini trial done, you know, uh, for, for the case, right? Kleros uses crowdsourcing for selecting jurors and a bunch of incentives based on, well, uh, token economics and, and all that in order to provide an incentive for users to, jurors to give honest rulings. Um, and so since the pool of jurors is way higher, uh, you can have a higher supply of jurors and this tends to drive down the price of the cost of the arbitration and also the, the, um, the time in which this happens, right? So it's, you could see it like middle ground between, you know, arbitration and uh, customer service, uh, you know, for example, the, the, the customer representative. In, so it sounds yeah. like uh, what you're doing is lowering the cost of adjudication by basically lowering the quality threshold for the jurors and lowering the amount of time and effort they put in. You basically say, hey, any of you guys can be a juror. And if you get signed up for a juror, all we do is ask for your vote and that's it. So that's why their cost is lower. They don't have to come into a special session and listen for several hours to testimony on both sides and be a certain sort of person. They just have to be somebody on the internet who's willing to send in a vote, right? So I could, that does plausibly lower the cost, but it raises the question, well, yeah, but is the decision gonna be as good? Uh, this way. And so what you'd like to have is some sort of randomized trial where you compare your mechanism to other people's mechanisms on the same set of cases to show us that it had a similar sort of rate of decisions. And um, that's what we do. That's what we do in our business development, you know, um, you know, initiatives. So we go to the company, let's say an insurance company that wants to use Claros to define what should be the right compensation for, um, you know, in a car crash. I mean, who should repair? How, how much should the insurance company pay the, you know, the the, the, the policyholder because of uh, to, to repair the car, the car, let's say. So they have one method they use for, for making this decision. Claros offers a different alternative. And so what we do when we talk to them is like compare, okay, this, you do it this way. The customer doesn't know how you do it. It's like a black box, so right. they don't believe you. So Claros is going to do it in this different way, which is at least as cheap as what you do, but the customer will see this as more transparent. Um, and but you, So do you have a data set though, comparing in individual cases, how the two mechanisms and what the correlation of the decision outcomes is? We, we don't have like big data sets because we, this is still, you know, 
Every, every small stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 do have some some of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in, in in some other so that's that's for you know this case. And there are other cases in which um, you know um, there are there is not you know a way to compare because it doesn't exist in the traditional you know uh, world like. Um, for example, use cases uh, that involve, I mean, content moderation. It, it, it exists, but since these things happen on, on you know, I mean, decentralized the straight, platforms. The straightforward yeah. thing to do would be to take the same set of cases that they've already adjudicated yeah. through their existing method and then ask your new method yeah. to adjudicate the exact same cases and see the correlation of its decisions, right? How often does it agree with the other decisions? Yeah. That's 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 how our business development system you know works. <laughs> okay, but do you have a data set like that? Do you have a data set where you applied your method to the? You said you did fifteen hundred cases. How many of those cases are yeah. cases where you already had a judgment the other way, so that you could look at the two different judgments? Yeah. We we had so the thing is that in these fifteen hundred cases, we these are like uh, some of them are verification cases in a project called Proof of Humanity that they don't have uh, equivalent, you know, in the in the traditional Web two world because that it, it was never done before in the in traditional. So we have a, a we have only like a, a couple, I mean, a dozen cases of um, where we can actually compare. Uh, so the process of resolving the case in the traditional, you know, insurance company, let's say, and and in Cleros, Cleros seems to be, I mean, way um, cheaper uh, as I was telling you. Right. Uh, how many of those dozen decisions were the same? Well, it, they, they are the same, generally. All 12? I mean, in all 12 cases, they made I, the same decision. I'm not sure in the 12 cases, but they, but they, 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 they seem to be to go the, in the same direction. The, the, the main thing here is to have clarity on what the rules are to make the decision. Because Cleros, in the end, the only thing it does is try to follow the rules that, that you give them. Give it right, but right. you also care if they're good rules, right? That is, the rules have, you know... Produce justice. They they get the right, make the right decisions. Definitely, yeah. The, a big part of also the, you know the business development process is you know get to good rules because if you have good bad rules, right. then but, but uh, the way to check if they're good rules is to look at their outcomes, right? To compare them to some yeah. other good good rules and see if they give the same outcomes. That's well. That, that that's the, the the business development process in which we we work every day. I mean, we're still, of course, early stage, but this is the the approach. You know, if Claros can provide you know right. decisions cheaper, better quality, or faster than this other method, right. and uh, and it can you know give the customer better satisfaction. Customers, I mean, both the user and also the the platform that you know outsources uh, the solution to to Claros, then. It, it has a I mean, chance of, of working and I mean, providing so, a service. Yeah. I know a way that if you have, you can use the same process and still make it cheaper. So if you've got some court-like process that people trust for some reason, and you want to say, I haven't changed that process, I'm going to use the same process, but I'm still going to make it cheaper. That seems like a clearer sales pitch to say, you don't have to worry about whether I've compromised on quality in the decision process here because I'm not changing the decision process. I'm just making it cheaper. And the way I would do that is with a lottery. Okay. So indulge me for a moment. Imagine uh, that you know you scrape my car in the parking lot somewhere, okay? And maybe you do $100 of damage to my car, and I could go sue you in the courts for this $100, but it's too small to be worth the bother. So I don't. And you know that. So you bought, you don't care about scratching my car. And that's a problem because it's too small. So 
I want to lower this cost. So let's imagine it costs, I don't know, $1,000 to go to court for me to sue you about something. And maybe it costs you $1,000 to defend against me, right? And again, that's too small in the case of the $100, where neither of us is going to be worth willing to spend $1,000 to figure out who wins the 100 But now let's imagine that, you know, you scratched my car. I took a picture of the scratch and, and you know, and I sent it to some court website that officially records that I made this complaint about you for $100 on this day, about this incident. And now lots of other people send their complaints to this website. And let's say we take a thousand of these complaints, each of which is worth $100, and we put them all in a pool, a gambling pool, a lottery pool, where uh, since you, since I complained that you owe me 100 you had to put up $100 into this pool. And since maybe you could countersue me and say that I was you know, making this up, I had to put $100 in. So we, we each had to put $100 into this pool, and so did the 999 other people in this pool. So now, in fact, in this pool, there's $100,000 on your side and on my side. That is, there's a thousand cases here, each of which put in $100. So that's $100,000 on one side and $100,000 on the other side. And now the court randomly picks one of these cases as the case to be settled. And all the other cases disappear. They're all told, your case is over, you lost the lottery, your claim can never be made again, go away, forget about it. They all just lost their $100. But you and I, if we happen to be the winning case, you've now got $100,000 to work with, and I have $100,000 to work with, and the case goes forward. And now I'm going to be willing to pay $1,000 or even $10,000 to collect evidence and try to make a good argument in court to convince the court that I'm right and you're wrong. And if I win, I win the $100,000, not just $100. But if you're if you win, you keep the hundred thousand dollars, and maybe you can even have a countersuit against me for approval for approval of suit for bringing up a complaint that had no legitimacy, and maybe I would lose my hundred thousand dollars in that case. And now, knowing that this is the process we all face, you won't scratch my car. That is, you will know that on average you will face a hundred dollar cost if you, in fact, scratch my car. It'll be a part of a lottery. It'll be a one in a thousand chance of a hundred thousand, but still you will face a cost. And so now I've used the same decision process, right? The court process didn't change. Whatever evidence comes to court doesn't change. Whatever, pro whoever's allowed to say what, when doesn't change. Nothing changed in the process. So the quality of the decision is not compromised, but I've still lowered the cost by a factor of a thousand. I mean, this sounds interesting. I mean, I would say, um, how many cases are solved each year in this, in this way? None at the moment, but the point why is not? this would be a way to lower costs. But why That's not? If, if, but if this, uh, if this is, uh, is would solve uh, 1,000 more efficient than what exists, why, why haven't anyone, I mean, people have not done this before? I don't know. So, I mean, so this brings us to this more general question of when we're trying to invent new things in the world, what goes wrong? <laughs> so... Um, you know, first of all, we have to realize, you know, the world is kind of reluctant to make changes. So uh, it takes time and effort to convince people to consider an alternative to uh, collect data about it. And then often there's lack of incentives. You can't own the alternative and somebody else could just copy you. And so there are definitely, you know, obstacles to innovation in general. 
in addition, you could say on some kinds of areas, people just don't want change. Uh, they, they just have an emotional attachment, something that's sacred to them, the way they've been doing it, and they, they resist change. But there's also the possibility that your solution is just wrong and broken. And people looked at that and they realized the mistake you don't you haven't made, realized. And that's why people don't like your solution is it's just wrong. It doesn't work. And yet another possibility is your solution works fine for the problem that they said they had. It's just not the problem they really have because they're lying about what they want. Uh, and so these are the various hypotheses we have to consider in all cases of proposing institutional changes. And that's true for my prediction markets and decision markets. It's true for your new you know, ways to resolve conflicts. It was true for my alternative lottery mechanism here. This is just generically the problem for all of our attempts to improve the world. Um, But I mean, we, at some at some point, I mean, some I mean, change happens in the world, right? I mean, yes, maybe it does. it's not me. Maybe, maybe it's not my project. You know, but but who knows? I mean, at some point, this right. solution right. will but, change. But change may not happen because somebody argued for it. So, <laughs> right, what we're talking about is how could I argue for a change, and what what counter arguments could people consider? But maybe change just happens because of other random things that happen in the world, and. They didn't change because they anticipated the benefits of it or were afraid of the costs or anything like that. They just had other random reasons to make changes that randomly get tried and sometimes they stick and sometimes they don't. So that's the part of the problem is what you and I are trying to do is consciously propose changes, think through arguments for changes and arguments against them and try to convince people to try changes on the basis of our arguments. And then we're trying to get them to consciously choose to try a change. And our question is, when does that ever happen? I mean, in our case, like uh, we actually, I mean, build the, the application and actually test it with, with real users. I mean, you could argue maybe, I mean, these 12 cases you had, I mean, that not representative or the, what you made lots of arguments. This is still a high innovation, you know, endeavor. And there are lots of ways in which this could fail for sure. I mean, but I mean, I, as we think is, you know, the way to test this is just to go to the customers and see if this solves the problem, you know, and we have right. learned lots of things from, from that. And so, I mean, obviously, I, I completely approve of people trying things and, and having people experience new things. That's how innovation has to be happening in substantial part. But often you try something and it seems to go well and they still don't let, want it and they don't really able to explain why. So, so, for example, by now, many dozens of companies have experimented with prediction markets in their firms over the last few decades. A great many, even relatively large companies have set up markets on moderately important decisions in their firms. And quite consistently, the market estimates are more accurate than the alternatives they have. And nevertheless, they almost never continue with the markets. <laughs> the markets are done in a trial mode and then they end and go away. Mm -hmm. So there's a basic puzzle there. Well. You know, you said you wanted accuracy at low cost. Looked like we gave you accuracy at low cost, but you turned out to say, yeah, it wasn't really what I wanted. <laughs> and now you're trying to puzzle over why didn't they want it? And so I don't know how long your experiments have gone on with your trial, you know, firms mm -hmm. that are considering yes. this, but I expect you also have a substantial fraction of people who you do a trial, it gives the good stats that they wanted, but still in the end they go, yeah, but we're not going to continue this. And you're left puzzling. Well, why not? We, we did what you wanted. 
And so this is a major obstacle innovation in the world is that people are often just not very aware of what they want or why. And there are these processes that make them like or not like things they can't articulate or explain very well, but it drives what happens. I mean, I agree. And so, but for example, if we see, I mean, past experiences of economic change or technology change, I mean, the internet, I mean, did bring a big change in how people interact and, you it know, and it, it, at some point it worked. I mean, maybe the, the right. it work in France, the Minitel, but it worked, you know, in the, so at some point someone gets it right, right? Right. So it's just if enough things get tried, some of them stick. Now the question is just how well can you anticipate at any one point which things to try and which things will stick and, you know, why? But that's that's our obstacles as innovators. I mean, to, to continue with the I mean, metaphor of the um, the court of, you know, aggregating all of the cases into one. So, like, yeah, you could say that what we are doing is a low probability of success. But the payoff, it, if it does succeed, I mean, could be, you know, compensating, you know, um, this low probability as, you know, every big thing that, that happens right. in the world, we could say. Right. So, I mean, a thing I've been looking at lately is trying to understand people's reluctance to adopt such things based on the kinds of things they say they don't like about them. And sometimes that's sort of associated with a concept of the sacred like mm. law is often associated with the concept of the sacred there's certain sort of ways the law should go and be in other ways would be polluting it and improper and you try and understand well what is it that they think should happen and why don't they like other alternatives so for example people often don't like money being involved with sacred things and they might say oh your token holders there they paid for this with money Ooh, i don't like that <laughs> And then you're puzzling over well, what's what's the problem there? How does that cause a problem? And this is unfortunately an obstacle for a great many things of change in the world. People often have sort of, they get used to the way things are and they sort of project onto them some sort of sacred aura about the way things should be. And then they get reluctant to change them, especially if your changes would seem to violate their rules of the sacred. What what would you say, I mean, for some person that is just starting, he wants to innovate in some field, I mean, and um, yeah, and will find itself in this situation of trying to do something different to which people are right. not used. And maybe they will, I mean, their grandmother is going to tell him, you know, yeah, good job. But, you know, in the end, maybe it's not going to happen. What would you say to someone in that position? Well, I might say, like, as, as far as you can, get to a situation where trials are low cost. So you can just try lots of things and then see what works without having to theorize too much about it. So I'm, I'm an academic professor, right? So I know a lot of theory and I have a lot of theory I can discuss about all these institutions. But I've been discussing with you just now some of the limits of theory. Not only are our theories wrong, but people may not be willing to adopt things that theory says would be good for them. And so, you know, a way to just cut through all of that complexity is to just do actual concrete things and see what happens. So, so for example, early in my experience with prediction markets, I designed a board game and I fielded, field tested the board game, say a half dozen times, where I had people come into a room and use this game for an evening and saw their experience with it and their complaints. and you know, that I could use to at least verify some aspects of my beliefs about what people would like or not about these things. 
because I could just try them straight out. So often it's just worth finding a simple version of whatever it is you're doing that you can just do fast and quick and see how it goes. I mean, you could even, I could even imagine you making a board game out of your mechanism and making a little evening party where you play through the game and then you see how people's strategies evolve and what their complaints are. You know, you know they have, behave. At this point, I have pitched, you know, Cleros to people from, I mean, all of the industries you can imagine. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I once talked with a guy who comes from the entertainment industry. I mean, he was a TV producer. I mean, he was like, you know, this is great for a TV show. Like and this, yeah. and people will see it as fun. It's not, you know, violating sure. any sacred, you know, thing. And and that would help them learn about your mechanism so that they might consider applying it. I, I think there is synergies there. That is, I think the, the institutions we have in society often, it's an important element is this people having a sense of how they work. So, I mean, our legal institutions, in fact, most people hardly ever actually experience them. And so most people's sense of legitimacy of our legal institutions is based on TV shows or movies or other <laughs> fictional depictions of them, which are actually not very closely related to how they actually work. And I think that if people would actually see how our real inst legal institutions are working, then that would be better. Either they would realize they like it and then it would be more legitimate for real or they'd realize they don't like it and they might push to change it. But either way, it would sound better. Um, just one more question. Uh, okay. So this, I mean, Claros or other, you know, systems that innovate in how disputes are being resolved. Um, okay. They can, or maybe not be adopted because of lots of different situations. How do you imagine AI? I mean, affecting like the legal system, because why can't you have an AI? I mean, being the judge in the cases. Well, obviously you can. The question is, do you trust their quality? Uh, so in a world of legal systems where people actually don't know why they trust them or don't really have any measures of their quality, I think it may well be hard to introduce an AI alternative because you're just asking for change and you're raising the question of, how do I know if what I have works or not? That is, if, if you say, let's do the AI judge instead, and people say, okay, show me that it works. And we say, well, we've never been able to show you anything else works. So why should we be able to show you why this thing works? And we go, what? <laughs> Now, you know, we've raised a question and made you doubt your existing systems, and that's uncomfortable with people. So I think, like, similar as for doctors, you might say, well, hey, what about the AI doctor? Should you use that instead of your regular doctor? And you might say, hey, show me the AI doctor works better. And I'll say, we haven't been able to show you regular doctors work better. How can we show you the AI doctor goes better? And you guys say, what? <laughs> you can't show me the regular doctors don't work better? Yeah, I can say, yeah, we don't actually know the regular doctors work better. <laughs> That's actually yeah. the literature. So we can't actually show you the AI ones work better either. <laughs> and, you know, basically in a lot of areas of society, most people don't realize how little they understand about how things work and how little evidence they have that the way we're doing them now is actually better. So that's yeah. an obstacle to coming in and saying, let's do something different, better, because people, once they realize that they don't have any basis for telling them that it's better and they don't have a basis for believing that even that the existing things are better then they kind of like want to just shut the whole thing off their minds and i don't want to think about this people people don't want to think about the fact that they don't can't trust their doctors that they don't know that the doctors are actually helping them on average they, they don't like to think about that 
So if making me think about an AI doctor makes me think about that, then I'm going to say, shut up, shut up, shut up. Stop talking. I want to hear about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's very sacred, you know, having a doctorate human, I guess. <laughs> well, maybe an AI doctor could be sacred too in some alternative world. Maybe it will happen in the future. But the obstacle to changing anything that's sacred is the fact that the sacred is just full of contradictions that get exposed when you try to talk about changing it. <laughs> I mean, all these things we're lying to ourselves about that we get away with lying because we just leave things alone and don't change them. I mean, I can imagine, like, I don't know, in 50 years, people, I mean, will say, hey, what do you mean? Like, they, they we're doing surgery, you know, with humans in the early I mean, 21st century. Well, I mean, but humans have problems, you know, the, the surgeon can maybe make a mistake. No, it's obvious that you should do this with an, an AI. I mean, Kind of how we see now, like riding horses, I guess. You know, it's right. why, what do you mean to use horses? So there is this pattern sure. of evolution. So. Right. So, I mean, the key thing to notice, there's some areas of our life where we get just very direct feedback about the effectiveness of things. Like if you take a plane to go to a city across the country, you get there faster. Yeah. Even you put on eyeglasses, you can see immediately faster, right? You're wearing eyeglasses. And yeah. it's easy for someone to convince you to buy some eyeglasses because you put them on and ta-da, you can see, right? But then there's these other areas of our life, like law and medicine and education even, where we actually don't see very clearly that we're getting value from them. Nobody shows us clear measures. They don't like put the glasses on and off to show you education works better or a doctor. They just tell you, hey, this person comes from a prestigious school and everybody else does it, so you should do it too. And that's just how big areas of our society go. Yeah, that, that's well. I mean, we could stay for a long time. I don't want to take more, but just one more no. thing. I mean, for people to, I mean, that are interested in your thoughts and your, I mean, ideas and everything we discussed here, could you recommend some books, articles, or whatever you deem is, it's, I mean, relevant for, for them to start learning? Uh, well, it depends on, of course, topics, but you can learn about me at hansen.gmu.edu. As I said, I have two books, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, and Robots Rule the Earth, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, recent work on aliens at grabbyaliens.com. And um, you know, my blog is Overcoming Bias that I've been publishing at since 2006. So um, those are a range of things you can find out about me. Well, Robin Hanson, thank you very much for, for being on our podcast. I am Federico Oas, I'm president of Cooperative Cleros, and this was uh, this episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast, and see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care.